Security is as important as ever, especially in regulated fields such as healthcare and financial services. Developers working in highly regulated industries often spend considerable time building tooling to help improve compliance and pass security audits. While the core of many security workflows is similar, each industry and each organization may have its own idiosyncratic needs or particular regulatory requirements to meet. SIM is a platform for building security workflows that seeks to build on those core similarities while empowering developers with the tools they need to meet their application's unique security and compliance needs. SIM believes in putting engineers in control of security, in the same way that DevOps puts engineers in control of infrastructure. Yasif Mohamadeli is a CEO and co-founder of SimOps. Before SimOps, he was the CTO of Karuna Health. He joins the show today to talk about security and innovation in regulated industries and how SIM can help developers close the intent to implementation gap in application security. Yasif, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Describe the engineering problems that exist in heavily regulated spaces. Yeah, great. <laughs> great way to kick us off. You know, I think the really interesting challenge you see in these heavily regulated spaces today is it's less of an engineering challenge and more of a tricky trade-off, I'd say. You know, there's like a lot of engineers out there who are really keen on doing the right thing by security and compliance. But, you know, understandably, these are also engineers who are on teams where you have to move really fast and pump out a lot of product. And so the kind of trade-off you often end up facing around security and compliance is basically move fast or be secure. And, and that's basically the, the, the choice you get almost every time. And so that's actually something that, you know, we're, we're really excited about tackling at SIM is kind of limiting that trade-off. But I'd say that constant tension of do we slow down and do the right thing or do we, you know, meet our product deadlines is, is the biggest challenge I see in the space today. And can you give me an example of a heavily regulated industry and a typical problem they might have? Yeah. So I think, let me, let me give two very different examples. So one is kind of more what you'd expect when I say heavily reg regulated industry. So maybe something like, you know, a healthcare company where, you know, let's say it's a, it's a SaaS company that happens to be in healthcare and, you know, they're, they're building a tool, you know, let's, I'll use my last company's example. We were building a messaging kind of product for healthcare and, you know, messaging products have all sorts of really cool technical problems. And all we want to do is like solve those technical problems and use, you know, some like, you know, we do a bunch of like SMS and calling. So we want to go use Twilio or some other vendor kind of like solve the underlying APIs for us. And we could just do the cool stuff of like, how do we compose these things and build a product out of this? But, you know, being in healthcare, we had all of these kind of hoops you had to jump through in order to use third-party vendors and all this kind of internal kind of like software and tooling we had to build to, you know, um, make sure that health information didn't get leaked to these vendors and to do kind of quarterly reviews of all of our infrastructure. And, and a lot of this kind of almost like governance kind of tools where, you know, every month you'd be like, well, here's the stuff we could get done, but instead here's like, you know, the three out of five things will actually get done because we have to spend two of the five, you know, slots, you know, building a, a tool for adding like, you know, peer review of SQL queries or, or something like that. And so, you know, th that's a kind of more classic example. I think a more very specific example that's more topical of people is uh, look at the Twitter hack last year, right? The Twitter hack was effectively internal kind of admin dashboard that didn't have any kind of like multi-factor on it. So someone compromised access to this dashboard, they had access to everything. You can bet that the engineers who were building it, at some point, someone thought like, oh man, you know, we should put some kind of MFA or a two-factor on this dashboard. It shouldn't just be like you log in with your static credentials and you get access. But then they had to decide, do we go do that? Or do we, you know, meet our sprint goals for the next three things we have to build? And, you know, they chose 
understandably to go meet their sprint goals for the next stuff. And, and, you know, the rest is history. So these engineering problems, they're typically getting addressed by just internal engineers writing custom code to fix them, right? Like, is there a generalizable solution to these kinds of problems that you're discussing? Yeah, you know, I think right now there's three different solutions I see people going after and none of them are great. So the first is the kind of obvious one of, yeah, let's just write a bunch of custom code, have the internal tools team kind of whip up a solution to this, you know, what is effectively often a workflow problem. And that's, it's super time consuming and slows you down as per the trade-off we just discussed. But also there's this huge maintenance burden you have to worry about, right? Like building internal tools, whether it's like a chat op bot or whether it's a microservice that's like, you know, auditing things or issuing credentials or whatever it is, you don't have to worry about security of that thing, vulnerability scanning, pen testing, who's going to maintain it. You know, the, the list goes on and on. So building these internally is like often an obvious solution for engineers, but actually has this huge hidden cost. So then people move to like one of two other solutions. One is like buying a, you know, off the shelf, like security products that solve your one-off thing. And often those are older products that are kind of meant for an IT world, right? Where it's like IT provisioning security software. And the problem with those tools is that it's very inflexible, right? Anyone who's ever had that moment where you you just like wish like this website or product had an API, so you just customize it and do what you want, but it doesn't. So you're stuck kind of, you know, building like human workflow hacks around this inflexible product. That's where you often end up with like buying things off the shelf, which then takes people to option three, which is like, we need more flexibility. We don't want to build something. And so, you know, the best way to compensate is humans. And so really, unfortunately, the way this problem is solved, ultimately a lot of companies is let's spin up a Jira ticket queue. Let's put an ops person on the other end of it. And whatever we need, this human will just do, which is, you know, terribly inefficient, not at all what that person signed up to do for their job, but, but ends up being kind of where most companies land because they don't have a toolkit to do anything else. Take me inside the engineering companies that you were talking about here, like what are the problems that they're facing in, in a little bit more detail and, you know, how are they evaluating these problems? What infrastructure assets do they need to secure to solve these problems consistently? Yeah. So I'd say there's a, there's a few big kind of like specific problems these companies are facing. And, and when I say these companies, you know, I really do mean at this point, anyone is building software, everything from small startups to big tech companies, to large enterprises that happen to employ, you know, a small number of engineers. And I think that the, the big buckets that at least we see a lot, one is this notion of just giving kind of ephemeral access to things. So like, I'm an engineer, you know, there's an S3 bucket that has sensitive logs in it. I don't need access to that bucket normally, but like, you know, I'm on call, I got pages three in the morning and I need to go look at those logs. How does someone give me access but make sure that, you know, they're not just like flicking a switch that never gets turned off, right? So that's like, you know, good tooling around ephemeral and like kind of just-in-time access is one. Another big area we see is kind of like onboarding, offboarding, right? So just like the, the crap of like, oh my God, let me spend the next three weeks now that I'm onboarded figuring out all the services I don't have access to and like hunting down the right person to give me access. And then likewise, you know, that horrible feeling when you realize that someone, you know, left your team two months ago and they still have access to your, you know, production AWS account. So I think that's the second big bucket we see. And the third is this kind of long tail of like taking everything around security, including the two things we just talked about and kind of thinking about the compliance end of those things, which is like, how do we demonstrate that we are actually following these workflows and doing the right thing? And, and that becomes a whole other issue where it's everything's internal or external audit. There's this 
last minute mad dash people are like pulling records and scraping together logs and running sql queries and it's it's this like super stressful time because there's nothing baked into the tools from the get-go that's actually kind of recording and logging all these kind of audit trails and so you end up with this kind of like huge last minute mad dash that kind of just compounds the other two problems we talked about you're building sim to address some of these problems tell me about what you're building and how you're addressing them yeah totally so our goal, you know, we kind of took a look at the ecosystem and we had two, two insights. One was kind of the thing we talked about earlier, which is when someone needs to go implement a new security workflow, their options right now are write a bunch of difficult to maintain code, use an inflexible product off the shelf, or just get a human to do it. And none of those seemed great to us. So we set out to kind of build a, a developer tool to help with this. And really what we wanted to build is a kind of workflow automation platform where you could kind of codify these workflows really easily and bring some automation, but without bringing a large maintenance burden. And also while still maintaining kind of, you know, being in a place where the, the workflows you end up with are as unobtrusive for your engineering team as they would be if you had built them from scratch yourself. And the way we went about doing that is our second observation in the market, which was that if you look across companies, compliance standards, industries, you know, what you find is that the security workflows people are rolling out are actually quite similar, even across very different companies. And what you normally see is people are building the same kind of core primitives and they're kind of arranging those primitives in a different way or putting a different kind of skin around it. And that skin is normally connecting to external systems that are already in place. And so that's kind of exactly what our product is is matching that, that second observation. So what Sim's product is, is it's, infrastructure as code, which lets you provision these core kind of workflow templates, which are almost these primitives that everyone ends up building over and over. And then once you provision those primitives, we have a SDK that lets you pull down a long tail of integrations and wire them up with your template to kind of put that last mile kind of customization on your workflow such that it looks exactly like whatever you would have built in house, but you kind of used our building blocks instead of writing all the code from scratch. So the product that you're offering people is the templates to, for solutions together with the integrations that you've built. Is that right? Correct. Correct. So very concretely, it's a Terraform provider that connects with our cloud-hosted solution, which can also be deployed on-prem and lets you provision these workflow templates. And then it's a Python SDK that lets you kind of write you know, a few lines of imperative code to customize these workflow templates and kind of craft the exact workflow that meets your needs. Can you say more about what a Terraform template is and, and what problem it solves? Yeah, so so you th think about, you know, so like I said, we, we're building these kind of workflow templates, which are kind of these primitives. And the way we think about those is those are a piece of infrastructure like anything else. So these days, the popular thing to do when you have some infrastructure is, you know, you, you use something like CloudFormation or Terraform to kind of declaratively provision it. So you say, I want an S3 bucket that has this name and this access policy, or you say, I want this database that has these things. And so similarly, we want people to be able to say, I want this workflow template that has this logic. And so the way we do that is we give them kind of a, a what's called a Terraform provider, which kind of plugs into Terraform and offers a custom kind of piece of infrastructure that they can provision declaratively. So they can say, I want a workflow template that is called this and that you know inherits some this logic and 
you know, they can run Terraform apply on, on that kind of static configuration and, and get exactly what they want. And, you know, lots of companies out there are using Terraform, lots are not using Terraform. Our, our product is not necessarily bound to just people who use Terraform. It's just, a, it's just a tool we use for letting people provision infrastructure. And, and, and it could be, you know, any other kind of infrastructure as code tool. So what is an example of a template that somebody might want to deploy? Yeah. So the the template that people are most commonly using today with SIM is called the SIM approval template. And basically what an approval, the approval template is, is it, it sets up, you know, you can almost think about templates as like, like in, in, the, in the Docker world, you have kind of these like, you know, like parent, like Docker images that lay out like a base file system. Uh, a SIM template almost lays out like a base set of workflow steps. And the SIM approval template lays out the base set of workflow steps for giving some, you know, granting someone approval to some resource, you know, routing that request to the right people. And then once it's been approved, kind of actually making the change to let the person into whatever the resource is, as well as kind of removing them from the resource when that access is expired. So I can make that very concrete because that's a bit abstract. Two concrete use cases from the approval template. One is the very classic, like I have an S3 bucket, it has sensitive logs, and I want to say that any engineer can request access that bucket. When they request access, you know, we follow some kind of routing algorithm. Maybe we say if the engineer is on call, they get auto-approved. If they're not on call, but they're a manager, then any other manager can approve. And if they're not on call and not a manager, then their own manager has to approve the request. So maybe that's what the logic looks like. And you can write all that in like three or four lines of like Python in our SDK. But like, you know, that's an example of what this workflow could look like is an engineer requests access to S3 bucket. It follows that kind of complex routing logic. And when the right person clicks approve, our system automatically gives them access to the bucket. They go in, everything they do is kind of monitored and logged. And then when they're finished, the access is automatically revoked. That's, that's one example of a use case on this kind of SIM approval template. The building blocks that you've created to make these kinds of templates, can you go into a little more detail of what these building blocks are, like what you've actually built as a company? Yeah. So, so you know, the building blocks are basically the steps that comprise these templates. And basically, you know, so my, myself and both my co-founders, you know, have all kind of run engineering teams in kind of heavily regulated environments before. So you basically just took the set of tools, the block that lets someone submit an access request from a command line or Slack, or the block that lets someone write a function that defines where a request gets routed, or the block that, you know, gives someone access to something and after a certain amount of time revokes that access. These are all like very common chunks of code that people write over and over at different companies. So we kind of wrote all of those blocks once in this kind of generic way, and then put this kind of layer of these kind of parameterized templates on top of them. And so, you know, when it's kind of cool because when people go provision one of these templates as a piece of infrastructure, the the work the resulting workflow they get has all of this like battle tested logic that is kind of the ultimate form what they would have built internally, but shared across all of the companies that use SIM. And likewise, on the kind of integrations and SDK side where people are writing some Python to customize those workflow templates, you know we have this large library of like imports they can use that connect to various different services. And, you know, we like to say that like 
every one line of code you write in sim is probably two or three lines of, of coding outside of sim because we've built these nice abstractions and tools and imports for you where you'd otherwise have to go spin up a whole microservice or write a whole integration with an external API. So really it's taking all the stuff that gets built, building it once and then exposing it in a really developer friendly way. So you can like string things together in an in order of kind of, you know, minutes instead of weeks. And can you say a little bit more about the deployment and integration process for the average customer? Yeah, it's, it's a pretty cool model, actually. So, you know, there's, there's two components to the SIM platform. One is a cloud-hosted control plane. And that's, you know, we, we host that. And it's kind of, it's really command and control for the other part of the SIM product, which is this uh, virtual appliance. And what's cool is this virtual appliance is the thing that runs all the user kind of SDK code. It's the thing that does all the sensitive operations. It's the thing that has all of the credentials. And that virtual appliance, uh, it can live in Sims Cloud, but it could also be deployed to your own environments. You can deploy it to your AWS account or to a, to a GCP account. And so the really cool thing there is you don't have to trust us with any of the sensitive credentials or even in your workflow logic. You know, you can use custom code, you can connect to any external or internal service, and all of that is executed within your own environment. So in that sense, you can kind of use SIM for these like very sensitive security operations, but not have to worry about like, oh man, they're getting, you know, the keys to our kingdom. Gotcha. And I think it's worth just, because since people may have, may have lost the thread of, of what we're talking about here, let's kind of like uh, think about a use case. So like... Uh, something in healthcare or, you know, something at the, yeah, let's, let's go something in healthcare. Cause you've, you've been the CTO of a, of a healthcare company. What kinds of problems would SIM have solved for you back at that company? And can you maybe, maybe dive a little bit deeper into how you would have used it and how the implementation would have worked? Yeah. Yeah. So let me, let me give two very concrete examples there. So one, one example, you know, we had a customer that came to us and, and, you know, kind of, I'll make a bit of a hypothetical situation, uh, but, you know, hypothetical customer that, that came to us and kind of said, hey, so we just want to make sure, you know, like, because we're giving all this patient data, we have to all comply with HIPAA. And one of the parts of HIPAA that's kind of specified for engineers is this thing called the minimum necessary requirement, which basically says only the exact people at any given time who need to have access to sensitive patient data have access to it. And so they, you know, this customer is kind of auditing us, they signed a big contract and they're saying, we want to make sure that you're following the minimum necessary requirement. And so they're kind of doing an audit of us and they're looking around, they're saying, hey, we noticed that you have this database and it keeps all the patient records. But we, you know, but you told us that there are eight people that have access to this database and we noticed that the size of your engineering team is eight. So why does everyone have access to our patient records? That doesn't sound like minimum necessary requirement. And you know, our, our answer to that was like, well, we want to keep the service as reliable as possible for you. Sometimes when things come up last minute, engineers need to go take a look at that database and like pull out records to, to for use for debugging. And you know, the customer's perspective is like, well, that's great when that happens. But the rest of the time, you know, any one of your engineers would be compromised. And now all of our patient records are out there in the wild. And so what they said is we want you to put a workflow in place that ensures that engineers can go in and do their job and, and save us from downtime when they need to. But on the average day, they're not able to just go and look at all these records. And so our choices were, okay, we can look at some like specific like data, you know, security solution for putting this like requesting and granting access around a database, but like I don't, I don't even know where to start there. 
we could write a bunch of code to like write some scripts and stuff internally ourselves, which is actually what we end up doing, you know, or we could just hire like a, like an ops person and say like, Hey, engineer, whenever you need access to the database, like, you know, go, go wake up the ops person and like submit a ticket and let them go give you the access and leave a sticky note on their desk to like revoke the access after a couple of days. Right. And like, we've all seen that before at, at companies and we know why that kind of sucks. Right. It's like not, not fun for the ops person, not being a gatekeeper and not fun for the engineer either. So then you kind of turn your attention to like, okay, well, let's say we had the time to go build our own workflow around this. Like what would we build? Well, probably I'd want to be able to like request access from the tools I already use, maybe like my terminal or like my Slack. Probably I'd want to be able to like very easily configure where those requests get routed to, but I want it to be like, you know, different routing if it was an emergency or late at night. And probably I want automation of like actually granting my access and revoking that access. So, so we built that at, at my last company and it took us, you know, a month and we thought, great, we spent a month and we able, were able to meet the customer requirement and, and we closed a big contract. But, you know, if Simit existed, we would have been able to pull down a template, provision it, write a couple lines of Python, and have the exact same workflow that fits perfectly into our existing tools that we already built ourselves, but, you know, done in a matter of, you know, minutes or hours instead of weeks. So that's, that's one very concrete example. And a nice kind of extension to that is we had a, we had a similar issue after that where it's like, okay, there's another database that doesn't have sensitive credentials necessarily or sensitive information necessarily but it has it's got like core data that's necessary for production and we had an incident where one of the engineers you know ran a bad query and almost dropped the database and doing a postmortem for the resulting downtime of course the first thing customers want to know is like well what are you doing to make sure that you know people can't do this in the future and again it's like our our options before would have been like just revoke everyone's access and put some like crazy manual ticket-based process in place to be able to, you know, run these queries or buy something off the shelf that's going to like do some funky machine learning or something and like analyze queries. Like that sounds too complicated or do nothing and risk losing a customer. Whereas like really, again, if we had had time, we probably would have built internally a really kind of cool homegrown workflow where someone can kind of like make a query on a command line. And if that query is part of a, you know, predetermined set of queries that are safe to run, it just runs. And if not, like, you know, the manager gets like a push notification on their phone saying like, hey, Yasef wants to run this query, just tap yes to let them do it. And, and so we started building something like that because that was useful for us. But there were so many pitfalls to building a complex system like that. Again, if we'd been using SIM, rolling out that workflow where we kind of wrap a database in this kind of like audited kind of queries and, you know, roll in different rules for who can approve those queries and, and how they can be pre-approved and, and how they get routed is all, you know, at our fingertips within a few lines of code. And so in general, the SIM platform is kind of this thing where anytime there's this kind of just-in-time access workflow for any kind of resource, whether it's something in your cloud, whether it's like a capability, like running a SQL query, or even whether it's some application level thing, like the admin dashboard we talked about for Twitter, you know, putting a very custom workflow in front of that, where at the core, someone is requesting access, someone is approving access after being routed that request. And there's some kind of automatic, yes, let you do the thing with an optional, let you stop doing the thing later is a handful of lines of code, no matter how you spin it on the SIM platform. Whereas each one of those workflows would have been several months of work without the SIM platform. And all of that is just one example of, of, of one of the templates offered on the platform. So it gets pretty powerful when you start thinking about all the different things you can do.
is it at all difficult to explain what you are, how you do, how you do what you do? And just because it's not like a SaaS platform that's just kind of easy to explain. It's it's this set of tools, this set of building blocks that is kind of made available to developers. Is it hard to explain? Yeah, you know, um, it's it's something we're slowly getting better at. But you know, as you've seen even here, it's it's, it's kind of difficult. I think you know the the high level of like you know being able to tell people like, hey, at companies that employ a lot of engineers there are security things that come up. And when those security things that come up, when those security things come up, the engineers have three options. Do nothing, which is a big risk, build a solution themselves, which is very resource consuming, or buy an off the shelf solution, which slows them down because it's obtrusive. Like people kind of understand like, okay, I see why all three of those options suck. And then being able to say, hey, we're option four. We let them kind of have the workflow they want without, you know, so they don't have to do nothing. They don't have to spend a ton of time and money and they get the flexibility they want so they don't slow down. So we're better than all three of those options. That kind of high level of like, we let engineers do that and like, let's just wave our hands about how we let them do that. People kind of grok that. But then to dive a level deeper and talk about templates and workflows and integrations and Terraform, it gets pretty dizzying pretty fast. I think that the silver lining is, you know, when you talk to engineers who are in the field, you know, DevOps and SRE people who are, living and breathing this every day. So people at our customers, they kind of get it right away. Cause I'll start telling one of these stories and they'll be like, oh yeah, that happened to me last week. Right. And so the nice thing with our customers is they kind of, they pick up on it right away and, and, and they kind of really understand the value of the platform. Can we go through another security workflow or just explain a few more security workflows to kind of emphasize the, the generalizability of what we're talking about here and how, and how many security workflows the average company might need to to implement. Yeah, so let me let me give two more examples. Uh, these are both. Well, the first one actually, a lot of companies that now these days end up adopting pretty early on, and it's kind of doing a some kind of what is normally a quarterly risk assessment. So the way this works is for a lot of different compliance standards, a lot of different kind of audits, on some basis, whether it's annual, monthly, quarterly, you kind of have to take stock of all of your infrastructure and resources. And say for each kind of set of infrastructure, you know, let me do this assessment, which says, what are the different ways this thing can fail, whether that's failed because it, you know, does something bad like leak data or fail because it goes down. And for each of those ways it can fail, you know, how likely is that and how costly would that be as a business? And you kind of like multiply all the probabilities to through and you end up with these kind of numbers that kind of tell you, give you kind of a, a risk score for each class of assets around your company. And a class of assets could be a set of databases or, or some S3 buckets or some servers or even a, a third-party platform. And so this kind of what's called a risk assessment is pretty commonly done at a lot of tech companies now that have to comply with standards like SOC 2 or, or HIPAA or, or you know, PCI or, or any of these different kind of industry-specific standards. And so, you know, it's it, it, right now it's just like terrible process where like once a quarter, 10 people get in a boardroom and spend like eight hours there and just like run through this like God awful spreadsheet. You know, anyone who's listening who's gone through this right now is probably like smiling because, you know, they've been there in that room and it's, it's, it's terrible. You know, like we at, at my last company, we would like order pizzas and like all try to hang out and like make a fun day of it. But it, it was awful. And, you know, if you think about it on the spectrum of like the problem sim solving, remember one extreme was like 
do nothing. The or I guess three options. One was do nothing. Two was do it manually, and three was buy an inflexible product. This is kind of option two. People are doing it manually. They're not using any automation. They're just doing it all themselves. And so, you know, when you think about what an automated kind of like ideal workflow would look like for a process like this, like it would be, it'd be like totally automatic, right? Like the system itself knows what the risk of every asset is. And anytime you change one of those assets, you get a notification saying, hey, you changed this thing. Please just let me know what are the updated risk numbers for this thing with this change you've made. And then once a quarter, the system just, you know, runs all the numbers and spits out your risk scores, right? Like totally automated. And the only time you need human input is explicitly when a change has been made. And the only human you need to give input is the one who made the change, right? Building that system yourself would require like scanning all your AWS logs, figuring out what changed, figuring out like who to message, how to message them, where to store all this information. Like that's a huge pain. That's like a, you know, a, a quarter or a year long undertaking. Sim has a template for that. So you can very quickly roll out a integration with your infrastructure as code kind of set up and have this whole automatic continuous risk assessment product that will automatically DM on Slack or email or wherever you want. People who are making changes will automatically collect information or risk scores. And once a month or whenever you need it, will spit out that entire spreadsheet without having to kind of do the whole crazy board room meeting, right? And again, it's like, that is the workflow someone would build themselves if they had the time. We're not coming up with something novel here. What's novel is that you can roll it out in a matter of minutes instead of having to spend, you know, months or quarters building it. And you can do that without sacrificing kind of bending that workflow exactly to what you want it to be. So that's, you know, does that kind of help make it kind of really concrete? Another example of kind of a a workflow here? Yeah, definitely. How do you see your company evolving over time? Yeah, it's a really great question. I, you know, we're starting out with some of these like very common security workflows or building this kind of like platform. And, and one piece I haven't mentioned yet is we also are trying to be kind of the bridge between like security and compliance. So I talked earlier about how kind of the, a, a problem people face is like around audit time or when every time you have to demonstrate your compliance is this mad dash to like collect logs, run queries, do all this like crazy stuff super last minute. When really you kind of want them to be baked into the tools you're using. So the cool thing about using SIM templates and SIM workflows is that every time you roll out a new workflow or a new use case, you don't have to write a single line of logging or auditing code. It's all built into the template. So on demand, whenever you want, you're able to kind of like show logs, show reports, show whatever you need to demonstrate your compliance without having to like do this mad dash. And so you start putting these pieces together, the the building blocks, the flexibility, the kind of integrations of different systems, and the fact that it automatically can, can kind of like showcase its own compliance to the world. And you start building up this kind of like, you know, de facto place for both codifying and demonstrating your compliance. And that's kind of where, where we want the platform to go, right? We want this to be the go-to anytime anyone in an or engineering org has like, even hears the word security compliance, I want the first thing they think of is like, how can SIM help with that? And and normally the way SIM can help with that will be, hey, we've got a template for that. And also whoever's breathing down your neck to kind of show that you're following the rules, you can just point them to a SIM dashboard, right? So the the kind of one-stop shop for anything security or compliance related on the engineering side is kind of the ultimate vision here. Uh, But we're starting these kind of very specific workflows. Gotcha. Let's talk about actually building SIM yourself. So 
What have been the hardest engineering problems you've had to tackle so far? Yeah, you know, it's been it's been really crazy so far. I think like in all of our last jobs as founders, we were building products that had like very serious like technical difficulties and like really interesting engineering problems. But ultimately the the user facing like part of the product that was exposed was pretty simple, right? I, you know, despite all the crazy logic from my last company behind the scenes of like routing messages across different providers and making sure things are delivered in order and, and all these kind of like crazy guarantees we had to make. And then at the day, what the user saw was like a, a web app where they typed in messages and hit send, right? And they got messages back. <laughs> and so the, the, the service area for the user was, was powerful, but simple. Same for my co-founders. In this case, you can imagine there's this crazy kind of engineering challenge just building this generic workflow system that can safely kind of incorporate user code and is flexible enough to let us really rapidly iterate on templates and, and integrations. And that's like a whole challenge in and of itself, you know, but on top of that, I'd say the hardest part has been the surface area and the interface, what we're exposing to the user is very complicated. We had this Terraform provider with seven or eight different kind of like primitives of, of different resources you can provision that all kind of string together to, to, to give you this whole workflow setup. On the integration side, we're supporting integrations with tens and eventually hundreds of external services, all with like different APIs and different guarantees. And, and we have to kind of, kind of unified interface to all of that. And so almost like the developer experience and the interface design of how we're exposing things to users has, I think, been the most interesting and tricky technical challenge, in addition to the more kind of expected challenges of just like the whole engine we're building behind the scenes. Interesting. Can you go a little bit deeper about how you solve these challenges? Yeah, it's it's tricky. You know, I think a, a large part of it comes from, again, like having a team of founders and engineers that we brought on the team now who have lived and breathed these problems before. So it's a lot of, you know, throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. Like, hey, like to provision this workflow, we think here's like kind of like the API in Terraform you'd want. You want to specify these options and you'd want to be generic in, in, in this way. Let's say it's like the approval workflow. You probably want to specify the fields that show up in the form when you request things. And you probably want to be able to specify the set of resources that you can request access to. And then you just like start running through scenarios. Like, does that work for, you know, protecting SSH access when someone's using AWS Session Manager? Uh, yes, it does. Does it work when someone's using Okta to protect access to like third-party, you know, SSO logins? Yes, it does. Does it work when someone is using AWS SSO and they have, you know, permission sets across multiple AWS accounts? Oh, no, it doesn't. We actually need to like specify, you know, the like cross-account role that gives us access to their AWS SSO instance. And we have to specify which account they're requesting access for a permission set or, you know, all these like very specific things. You kind of just start throwing things at the wall and, and, and trying to break your, your model of what you've designed until you end up with a kind of interface for a given integration or template that that actually makes sense and, and kind of like holds up to the test of many, many different workflows. And, and once we establish that internally, we then go do the whole thing all over again externally. So every week we'll have people coming in and we'll say, hey, pretend that it's your job to use SIM to do X. Like, here are the docs, tell us if you can do it. And so, you know, it's a very kind of iterative process where we're really just like, you know, trying things and seeing what works, but, but it's, it's tricky. It's get, getting that, that complex interface, right, is, is really hard. And it's something that we're kind of looking for people who, who find those kind of problems exciting because it, it's a lot of work. The amount of integrations that you have to write to make these 
workflows easy to create and customize. Is that overwhelming? Do you have a scalable way of creating these integrations? Yeah, you know, I think we're, we're we're taking inspiration from a lot of prior art here. Like, you know, there's a lot of like technical work that people have done in general. It's like making integrations a little easier to, to build. So it's like, you know, a lot of like other people have done this we can learn from. There, there are products that inspire us. I think Rippling, you know, it's a very different domain. You know, they're like HRIT software, but I think their approach to how they let people set up integrations, how they integrate and kind of give a unified interface for things is really heavily inspired us. And so we're, we're learning from a lot of other people out there in terms of how to think about this. But, but ultimately, I think our secret weapon is we've really heavily kind of pre-invested in architecting the system such that it is dead simple to write the marginal integration and to kind of roll it out for two reasons. One, because we can then kind of scale everything out to, to a team where you don't need a ton of context or to even be a very senior engineer to be able to very quickly add integration to the same platform. So we can have a lot of people who, who can be doing that. And we've, we've invested internal tooling and abstractions that enable that. The other thing is we eventually want to open it up to the community and have you know our customers be able to contribute their own integrations. And it's not our customer's job to be experts at writing SIM integrations. And so we want to make it you know as easy as possible for them. So that's been another motivation to kind of it's almost a meta thing where we have to think really hard about the developer experience of writing integrations uh, in order to kind of smooth that process out over time. Have there been any integrations that have been particularly difficult to create? Ooh, that's a great question. So far, it's been pretty smooth sailing. I'd say the one integration that we've struggled a bit with is, you know, a lot of our customers, you know, so one of our customers is, is LaunchDarkly. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are kind of familiar with them. And they use us, among other things, for protecting access to, protecting SSH access to specific instances. And the way we do that with them and with a whole host of other customers is via um, AWS Session Manager, which kind of lets you effectively open a WebSocket to an instance and do an SSH connection without dealing with kind of keys and all the other stuff you normally have to deal with. And, and that's great. You know, we kind of have a CLI that wraps that and that kind of serves as our SSH integration. The, the problem is there have been various points where it's become pretty apparent that parts of Session Manager are, I call it, it's kind of a half-baked product where things go wrong in very weird ways. So we've had a lot of really interesting scenarios where we are, you know, deep in the code, like trying to like, you know, decompile binaries that are shipped by AWS to try to figure out like, what is this code doing wrong? That's causing this weird issue that our customers see 1% of the time. One example of that is like, you know, random story. Like we had this issue where we had a CI server that was running this AWS session manager kind of integration test. And we would notice that over time, the test started failing more and more but we weren't changing anything about it. And then we would provision a fresh instance and point it to the fresh instance and it would pass every time. And then over time, start failing more and more. It turns out what was happening is there was a bug in this like binary helper that was shipped by AWS, which wouldn't close a session manager session after you kind of terminated it from the client, which meant that you had these orphan sessions that were just dangling there and over you know weeks and months, they would accumulate and cause resource starvation on the instance. And, and we realized that was impacting all of our customers. Uh, you know, so we went this whole process of reporting it and getting it fixed, but it's like, you know, not, not the kind of thing you'd expect to be dealing with in your buildings integrations. So I think we're, we're often hitting the limits of some of these experimental technologies. And, and that's kind of been a bit of a challenge. How closely do you need to work with 
your customers? I mean, your, your product is, is somewhat young. Do you have to follow them pretty closely or is it more self-serve at this point? So, you know, it's an interesting balance. The, the entire product is designed to be very self-serve. You know, eventually we want to get to the point where, you know, anyone can can use Sim and kind of self-onboard onto it even. And, and so the whole thing, you know, like our, our docs are, are, we are really put a lot of effort into them. The whole thing is meant to be kind of self-documenting and, you know, anyone can go in and do it. Having said that, you're right. It's a young product. We're still figuring out some of the abstractions. And so for our benefit, it, it makes a lot of sense for us to work very closely with some of our customers and basically just observe them. We, we, we try not to like do custom work for our customers, but instead kind of give them the tools they need and kind of like watch what they do and, and help guide them. And that really helps educate kind of, you know, our set of tools and abstractions and how we can improve that for the next customer. So I'd say it's, you know, it's a very collaborative thing right now, not because it necessarily has to be from the customer perspective, but because it really helps educate our product. Gotcha. And have you learned anything interesting from talking to to customers? Like, are there any ways in which the, you know, you're seeing application development change in real time? Yeah, I think a few things. Let's see. First of all, on the, on the application development side, I think it's like people are thinking about security privacy implications much earlier in the application lifecycle now. So like before it was security is like an afterthought, like someone else will deal with it. Now you have like engineers all around the company who are coming to us because they like have used SIM for some other workflow at their company. And they're saying, Hey, I'm building this other thing internally. And I was just thinking about security and I think we need to protect this or we need to do this. Like, is there a SIM workflow I can help with that? Can I integrate SIM into this thing I'm building or, or into the kind of like, you know, governance around the thing I'm building. And so it's really cool just to see like, actually the average engineer has a lot of cool ideas around security. And if they only had a really easy tool they could reach for, I think people would actually be a lot more proactive about the stuff and it would solve a lot of the kind of cultural issues we see in our industry around security. And so that's been really inspiring just to see that we can actually be a resource for people and empower them to, to have something, some low hanging fruit they can reach for to kind of like experiment with the kind of like some of their security concerns and needs. So that's been one. The other really cool learning or, you know, interesting learning we've seen, I think on the more like um, DevOps infrastructure's code side is, you know, this is something we talk a lot internally. It's like, it's crazy. You, you have these standardized tools right now. A lot of people are using Terraform, using CloudFormation, you know, all these different things. And like, we initially made the assumption like standard tools means people are using the tools in a standardized way, but we couldn't have been more wrong. It's it's just really remarkable to us to see from customer to customer how much it can vary and how vastly differently you can use the same tools. So the way people are structuring their code bases for their infrastructure as code and their Terraform setups and, and how they're kind of provisioning resources and what their software development lifecycle looks like around this whole like infrastructure as code thing it varies so much from company to company. And so it's been really cool learning for us. It's made onboarding people a bit challenging because we can't just give a one size fits all like, hey, run this script and it integrates with your existing setup because everyone does things that are so different. And so the, the takeaway there from us, we've had to make even the way you deploy SIM very modular to be able to fit into kind of many different kinds of workflows and setups. As we begin to wind down, I'd, I'd love to get your perspective on the future. Just generally, generally speaking, you've done a lot of different things in software. You've worked at a variety of companies. Do you have some some broad predictions about how software development is going to be changing in the near future? And I guess more specifically around security. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I, so I've got this like thing, I, uh, this analogy I kind of like to give that I really think reflects the future. And so the like, comparison I like to make here is if you think about five or 10 years ago, a lot of like infrastructure and like deployment stuff was owned by IT, right? You had the sysadmins who were kind of like doing their thing and application engineers didn't really think about this. So you write the code and like someone else gets it to production for you. And this is a whole kind of like revolution of engineers reclaiming, you know, what we now call like DevOps and, and kind of like bringing this into the fold and saying like, hey, actually infrastructure deployment, like this is something we're going to own now, but in order to own it, we need a set of tools. And we started building tools, right? We built Chef and we built Docker, we built Kubernetes, and we built everything that came in between. And so that's really cool. Like it's really inspiring that we did that. I think we're seeing that happen now with, with security. I mean, quite literally like DevSecOps is a thing now, but, but like more broadly, we're seeing engineers kind of wake up and say, hold on a second, security is not something I can throw over the fence and like someone else to deal with. This is part of my product, this is part of what I do. And we see engineers kind of reclaiming security, but just like with infrastructure, in order to do that, people need the tools. They need the things that kind of empower them to actually reclaim and, and operate you know, in these domains. And so I think what we're going to see is a huge wave of people building security tools for developers to help them with that wave of kind of reclaiming security. And, and hopefully we're, we're the first uh, kind of step of, of, of many in that direction. Okay. Well, yes, if is there anything else you'd like to add? Any other topics you'd like to explore? No, this is pr- pretty comprehensive. Thank you so much for, for all the really thoughtful questions. Absolutely. Well, good luck with Sim and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much.